Do you have Nehemiah chapter 1? Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 1 says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I'm going to read that one more time. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned, somebody say mourned, and fasted, someone say fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. Father, have your way once again. Remove me, place your Holy Spirit here. In Jesus' name. And all the saints said, before you're seated, shake your neighbor's hand and tell them, let's build a heart. Then they could turn this up on the monitor now. Turn this up on the monitor. The story that we're looking at and we're getting into here this morning is the story of Nehemiah. And maybe they could turn this up in the monitor. And the story of this is not actually one of a seemingly great story. It's actually one of a horrible plight. Nehemiah hears the state of Jerusalem and how the walls have been destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem remained unrepaired, which left the people defenseless and vulnerable. Not only that, but it left a mark of being despicable and susceptible to slavery and to poverty. The walls being down represented easy prey for the enemy to come in and come and go just as he pleased. Not only were the walls of the city burnt and destroyed, but the people were in disarray and in disorganization. The walls being down also meant a destruction of their identity. Somebody say identity. See, the holy city was a representation of, of uh, the kingdoms throughout of God's love and also of God's peace. When the walls of Jerusalem were up, then that meant God's love and God's peace and God's strength was also up. When the walls were down, that meant God's love was down, God's glory was down, and it had been destroyed. So the walls being down was a big deal. Somebody say big deal. There was a tragedy that had happened here. My friend, I want you to know something. When tragedy strikes in your life, one of the first and greatest things that you can do is to pray. I'm going to say that one more time. When tragedy or disaster strikes within your life, one of the greatest and strongest things that you can ever do is to pray. Prayer is the key to seeing the supernatural in your natural. Somebody said prayer does not change God, but it changes him. Who prays? I like what Oswald Chambers said. He says, we have to pray with our eyes on God, not on the difficulties. When we pray, we pray with our eyes on God, not on the situation or the circumstances in front of us. Now, what's important to see with Nehemiah is that he mourned, he prayed, and he fasted. Somebody say fasted. Where we are at as a church, we are at 
a corporate fast, a 21-day fast, as my wife so eloquently put it. But what I want to do is share with you here the details and the purpose of our unity in the heart. We are fasting, listen to me, we are fasting to build a heart. We are fasting to build a heart. I'm going to say that one more time. We are fasting to build a heart. If you believe that, give the Lord a hand of praise. We are fasting to build a heart. Now, if we're fasting to build a heart, why did Nehemiah fast and pray first? How come he didn't go about it and look about it and do something about it with his natural hands? Why did he pray? Why did he fast? Why did he go and do that first? So if we look at that, we can ask ourselves a few questions. And first thing we were to ask ourselves is that, is fasting important? Is it an important thing to do within the Christian life? I want you to know something. Yes, it is. It's very important. Matter of fact, every importance in the Bible, uh, every important person in the Bible practiced fasting. Moses fasted. David fasted. Elijah fasted. Esther fasted. Daniel fasted. Paul fasted. Even Jesus himself fasted. That's just to name a few. All these people fasted. Matter of fact, when Jesus taught on fasting, he would say, when you fast, not if you fast. It's important when you fast, not if you fast. As I was studying this, you know what I found? I guess it's a true story. Uh, some of you, you ever watched that movie Dream Girls? I, I know you saw it. Don't lie. You saw it. You sang with it too. We are dream girls. I know you did. You know what Beyonce did? Beyonce fasted for 21 days. True story. Now, I don't know if she prayed. I don't know. But if you know anything, she actually has a gospel background. So even Beyonce understood the principle of fasting. Look at this. Even the world understands the principle of fasting. How much more should we understand the importance of fasting? This is what God has called us to do. Now, this is really the question. Why should we fast? I want to give you a few important reasons why we should fast. This is very important. Number one. Fasting can increase our hunger for God. Fasting can increase our hunger for God. I like what John Piper wrote. He said, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God, and it can be awakened, and awakened through fasting. Listen, my friend, I don't know about you, but before I got saved, I nibbled a long, long time at the table of the world. Matter of fact, this month marks my 21 years of being saved. I got saved at the very first Mighty Men of Valor. I'll never forget. That's when I got saved. I have been saved longer than I have been unsaved. When you get to that point, you're going to love it. See, some of you right now, you've been saved for three years. Once you get to that point, maybe some of you got saved at 20 years old, maybe at 21 years old. There's just that, that, that it just, I'm telling you, it just kind of turns things around when I've been with Christ longer than I've been without him. That's awesome to me. That's powerful to me. 
I've had a relationship with a man who changed my life longer than the enemy tried to take my life. Whew, that gets me excited. Fasting reminds us that we can get by without most things in our lives for a season. But we cannot get by without God. The first and the main purpose of fasting is to draw closer to God. I'm going to go through these things real quickly because uh, you'll see why in just a little bit. Number two, fasting can train our passions. Fasting can train our passions. We're so used to, to giving ourselves whatever we want. You ever notice that? We're so used to giving ourselves whatever we want. I mean, we could just be walking and go, you know what? I feel like a burger. So guess what we do? Go get a burger. I feel like a burrito. I'm going to go get a burrito. That's what it does. See, because our mind is trained on certain habits. And then what happens is the mind then trains your body. It tells your body, I'm hungry, eat. I have to do this, eat. With fasting, it actually helps train us. Richard Foster says that our stomach is like a spoiled child. And spoiled children do not need indulgence. They need discipline. Some of you in this 21-day fast, stop it. Stop that right now. Some of you need to take off the belt and whip your stomach. Listen to me. We are not to be controlled by our stomachs, but we are to be controlled by the Spirit of God. We are to be controlled by our Heavenly Father. Fasting is a spiritual training of self-control. That's what it does. It teaches you how to be or excuse me, how to allow the spirit to control you. I, I've shared this before within my, uh, within my, even my testimony, I've shared this. Many of you have heard it even just a couple weeks ago I shared about it, about how when I was 20 years old, I actually made a declaration or should I say a New Year's resolution that I'm never going to drink soda again. And you know what? I can honestly say since I was been 20, 21 years old, I think I can count how many times I've drank in soda on one hand. I don't drink soda. See, because a lot of us think, no, I have to have, I have to have soda. I have to have coffee. I have to have this food. I have to have, says who? Says your stomach? Says your, is that what it is? Now listen to me. I, I fully understand where I'm coming from and where I'm going, but I also understand the country and the state of where I'm at. We as Americans, we indulge ourselves in whatever we want, whenever we want. We have the ability right now to leave here and go eat whatever we want. You know what? A lot of countries, they can't do that. They can't do that. And so a lot of times we go and we do that. And just, Man, this is, it's just out of control. I don't even know why I'm doing this. You need to train yourself. Not indulge yourself. Discipline yourself. Look at your neighbor and say, discipline yourself. A few weeks ago, I talked about gold and brass. Do you guys remember that? And I talked about it, but there was one point I didn't bring out. I want to bring this to you. The way that gold was refined in the ancient days was that the goldsmith would take the ore and he would place it in a great vessel with fire underneath it. This is important. As it heated up, the ore would melt and all the impurities would rise to the surface. What would happen was the impurities that rise to the surface, it was called dross. Somebody say dross. Now, this is what was important. He wasn't finished there. He would stock the fire 
with more and more and more until, the, until more impurities and more dross would rise to the top. Then as the impurities would rise to the top, he would skim it off. And then what he would do is he would heat it up more. He would heat up the gold even more until all the impurities would come to the top and come to the top and come to the top. He would continue this process until the gold was completely pure. It was said that the goldsmith knew that the gold was pure when he can see his reflection in the gold. Some of you guys on the way home, you're going to catch that right there. He knew that the gold was pure, the dross was gone, the impurity was gone because he heated it up. God does the same thing with us. He heats things up in our lives so that the dross can rise to the top. When we go through hard times, when things in our life are brought to the surface, when the sins and things that we are holding on to that we need to let go of, they rise to the top. When pride comes to the top, hello somebody, gossip and hatred, bitterness, self-centeredness and ego, when you're going through some situations and all that stuff, it rises to the top. All that stuff, God is trying to get rid of that dross. He's trying to get rid of all those impurities. See, these things can become real obvious when we go through hard times, and it gives God the chance to skim, the, skim them off and purify us. He knows when he is done when he can see a reflection in us. So I said all that to say this. You know what fasting is? Fasting is a voluntary heating process. That's what it is. It's a voluntary heating process. Now, I want to tell you this. I don't know about you, but I would rather turn up the heat on myself than let God turn up the heat on me. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So when we fast, it's because we're in training. We are in training. What we are doing, listen to me, Heart of the Bay, right now, we are all in training. Somebody say training. And we are getting ready. I know we just had a fight yesterday, and many of us, you've been watching the training of Pacquiao. You've been watching the training of Mayweather. And some of you, you've been watching it on TV, and you've been going, man, I wish I could do that. Mm, man, oh, look at him. Man, that guy, whew, he's bad. See, it's a good idea, but I'm talking in the spirit. Some of you right now, all that pride is coming to the top. When you're fasting right now, all these different things, right, uh, like, Take, for instance, this. This hasn't happened to me in a while because I've trained myself. But I remember when I first started fasting, I used to get headaches like that. Ever happened to you? I used to get headaches, bam, like that because my body, like, I needed food. I, I want to eat. I want to eat. Was, ah. And what, what happened was when I had headaches, everybody around me got the worst of my headache. So it's the truth, right? Like, don't talk to me. I'm going, okay. Stay away from him, you know. Like, no, you can't be around him. And it's like, oh, it's not your fault. It's just, oh, this dumb headache. It gets on my nerves. Why? Because you're training your body. You're training yourself. You're training that love to truly be loved, to really learn what it is to love your neighbor and even love your enemy. See, this is all training to be kind to everyone, not just the people who are going to give you something back, but be kind to those who are going to give you nothing in return. Fasting is training. Somebody say training. Somebody said more than any other single discipline, fasting reveals the things that can control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. 
Even David in Psalms chapter 69, verse 10, he says, My soul is humbled with fasting. Listen, my friend, God wants us to be like pure gold. So we can turn up the heat on ourselves or we can allow God to turn it up the way that he does. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says, spend, spend your time and energy in training yourself for spiritual fitness. Physical exercise has some value, but spiritual exercise is much more important. For it promises a reward in both this life and in the next. What we are doing right now is we are getting a little Pacquiao going. I know he lost, but who cares? To me, he's still a winner. Amen. He may have lost in the ring, but outside the ring, the guy's a winner, man. That guy's awesome. See, you know what's funny? If you were watching the fight, as we were all there watching it, and, and uh, uh, they did this Twitter battle, right? They had the Twitter wars. Who's going to win on Twitter? Well, I, one thing we've learned, Twitter does not win in the ring. Amen. But on the Twitter war... Everybody was going for Pacquiao. They just, you, you know why? You, you know, a lot of people do know why, because Mayweather is a cocky guy. You know what that told me? Even the world hates pride. Even the world hates pride. See, look at, I'm saying this because it's very important. If there's anybody in this world, on this earth, that should be let out and full of Christ and not full of pride, it should be us. We're the ones that should be able to give, bring peace, bring love, bring joy, bring health, bring long-suffering, bring goodness. That's our job, not their job. We're the ones that when we come to church on Sunday, we're getting spiritually ready. We're getting spiritually fit. We're getting ready. So when the offering bucket goes by, we're going, okay, God, here we go. I'm giving to you. I'm getting ready. You're learning what it is to be spiritually fit. Spiritual fitness, fasting, even goes ahead of you into your heavenly account. See, this is something that you and I must understand, that the spiritual disciplines are very important. It is both physical and spiritual, and it builds our faith muscles so that we can withstand the bigger contests that come our way. Number three, why we should fast is that fasting can be earnest prayer. Can be earnest. Now, many people fast when they are desperate for God to answer their prayers. We can fast for a rescue from even a bad situation, healing of a loved one, direction in life, or, or other requests that are even close to our hearts. But I want you to know something. Fasting is not a spiritual hunger strike. It's not a spiritual hunger strike that says, okay, God, I'm fasting, so you must do this. I'm protesting. No, that's not what we do. This is an earnest prayer. This is an earnest seeking. This is an earnest de destination. We are coming to our Father and telling Him and even telling ourselves that this issue is very important to us. And so we want to get deeper and get even more sincere in our prayer life. I want to seek Him with everything of who I am. Not just a little bit, but everything. Listen to me. This is very important. I know many of us, we have an altar call, but don't let the altar call be your only time of prayer. If it is, man, we're going to have a lot of spiritually malnutritioned Christians. We need men and women that can pray. Last night, uh, my wife took a bunch of women, and they just went out and prayed for 
other women, right? You guys went out all last night. I heard it was great. They went and prayed for men, went and prayed for women. Even a few of the men went. They all went out there and said, man, you know what? Let's just go. It was, I didn't see it on the calendar. Listen, you don't need a calendar date to go pray for people. See, far too often this happens. You, you know why? This happens way too much. You know why a lot of people will rely on the, uh, uh, the, the, the structure of the church, I should say, or the building of the church to do the work of the Lord? It's because they're spiritually malnutrition themselves. And that's why they say, oh, the church should do this. The church should do that. The church should do this. The church, they should do that. They should do this. They... So people who are spiritually fit, like, I've been doing that. I've been in the gym. Where you been? I've been on the late night. I've been in the midnight hour praying. Where, like, come on, man. You need to get on my level over here. Where, where are you at? We've been doing that. I've been winning souls. I've been out there with my life group. We've been going out winning souls. Where you been? But that's why a lot of people do that because they don't want to go to the spiritual gym. They like, every, they like to watch on TV. Ooh, I'll watch that pastor on TV, but actually go? I don't know about all that. I don't know about all that. Those are those TV fitness gurus, right? They can watch it on TV. Oh, it's great. But actually do it? No, no, that's too much for me. I don't want to do that. See, fasting can also keep us in an earnest prayer consistent with our Savior. The fourth reason is that fasting can help us humble ourselves. I'm going to say that one more again. Fasting can help us humble ourselves. See, fasting is an act of humility. Just as kneeling or bowing before God is an act of humility, so is fasting. One of the most wicked men in the Jewish history, King Ahab, eventually humbled himself before God and demonstrated it by fasting. You can read it in 1 Kings chapter 21. This is what it happens. It says, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring disaster on his day. Look at this. Look, this I mean, this alone, I can go into a whole message just on this. But look at this. A wicked king understood what he was doing was not good. Now, I'm not going to get into details of what he was doing, but just know that he was wicked. He was very wicked. I can almost say that he was probably doing some wickedness even beyond what we're even doing to this day in America. He was doing wicked things. But all of a sudden, he realized, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? He really, oh, wait. And what did he do? Rather than saying, you know what, I'm going to do this. He said, no, I'm going to fast. And you know what the Bible says? In his fast, he stopped a disaster. Did you know that our fast can stop a disaster? Our 21-day fast can stop a disaster in the heart of the bay. Listen to me. What we're doing right now in this fast is not about making the news. It's about not making the news. That's how you know this fast is going to be powerful because we are not going to be hearing about the killings and the shootings and the violence and the anger that is happening in the heart. We're building a heart by fasting for the hearts. We can stop a disaster. Gets me excited right there. The fifth thing, why fasting is important, is that fasting can be a sign of repentance. 
Repentance. Somebody say repentance. Repentance is a decision to turn away the sin within our lives. Listen, our Christianity today, repentance can be a very light thing. Did you know that? It's A lot of times repentance is just some words that we say, and it can be over in just a matter of seconds. But many people in the Bible fasted to show their seriousness in repentance. Now, this is what's important. I, I don't know if this might make you uncomfortable, but many people, when they got saved and they repented before the Lord, they didn't just repent, come to an altar, say some words, write their name on a piece of paper, and go back. You know what they did? They fasted and said, I'm going to get rid of this worldliness so that I can get filled with this holiness. That's what fasting does. I don't want anything else to hinder this salvation and this relationship that I have with this new found man, and I'm a new creation in him. Listen to me. While we would like our confession and repentance to be as short as possible, fasting takes time. This might lengthen even our discomfort, even with the guilt, but it might cause us to take more serious our decision and turn away from our sin. Some of you even here this morning, you're coming to church, but you don't have that relationship with Christ yet because you don't have a repentant heart. There's a difference. I know you come to church, and I know a lot of times when you can go to other churches and they won't tell you this stuff. You'll never hear words like repent. But you're going to hear it at Victory Outreach. You're going to hear it at Bible-believing, God-fearing churches. Listen, you need to know this. You need to repent. Don't think that you come to church and I could just slip under the radar and, and live in sin. No, if you're living in sin right now and you're married and you're having sex, stop it. Don't do that stuff. I don't even know why I went there. Oh, my God. Talk about that. I'm serious, though. Stop doing that stuff. If you're on the, the, the teeter-tottering of, well, well the, you know, other Christians do this and other Christians do that, find out for yourself and stop playing, you know, lukewarm with Christianity. Stop doing that stuff. If you know you need to repent, repent. Stop messing around with God. You know one great way to repent? Fast. Fast. If you really want to stop playing games with the world and stop playing games with your relationship with God, Fast. Somebody say fast. See, when we fast in our repentance, it's not a, an, in an attempt to punish ourselves from our past sin, but as a commitment and preparation for our future pursuit of his righteousness. It is a sign that we are starting something new. People have also fasted out of grief for others since, not just their own, just like we see here in Nehemiah. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Verse 6, and as I was reading this scripture, the first people I thought of was uh, Brother Art and Brother Greg. I just thought of it right away. This whole, matter of fact, this whole uh, first few chapters of Nehemiah, actually almost all of it, you, you, it's all about building, and you'll see what I'm talking about right now. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6 says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of, all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their... With all their, with all their. Now, what's important is that Nehemiah, he fasted and he prayed. He fasted and he prayed. But after he fasted, he prayed, he went to rebuild the city. 
Now, when you read in Nehemiah chapter 3, now I'm going to do my best to kind of bring it all together really quick because this is actually another sermon in and of itself, and I want to condense it for you because it's very important. First thing that Nehemiah did when he heard that the walls were down, he fasted and he prayed, but after he did that, he got to work. Some of you listen to me. The, The reason why I'm preaching This part of this message is because you heard all the preachers that we're going to be having, right? So I'm not going to speak for a little while. So I'm actually trying to speak my message that I would have spoken to you next week. I'm trying to give it to you right now. Because by the time I speak again, our fast will be done. So I want to try to get this to you as best as I can about when we're done with our fast, this is what we need to get to. Are you hearing me? This is very important. Now, Nehemiah... When you read in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, you will read how of the specific manifestations of his answered prayers. But the thing about it is that Nehemiah had specific organizational skills. After he fasted and he prayed, God gave him a vision while he fasted and he prayed. Are you hearing me? When he fasted and he prayed, God gave him a vision as he fasted and he prayed. There was a purpose to what he was doing. Three things that happened with Nehemiah that I believe when this fasting is done, we need to be ready. Tell your neighbor, we're building a heart. The first thing is mobilization. Mobilization. When you read the chapters here, you will see that Nehemiah showed very unusual skills to bring some unusual people together. I'm going to say that one more time because that's victory outreach. Nehemiah showed some very unusual skills to bring some unusual people together. If we're going to be successful here in the heart of the bay, we need people who are willing to be mobilized for the cause. Men and women who can be mobilized at any time or even at a specific time. You know why that's very important that our offices, man, we need people in those offices mobilizing, moving. See, that's why sometimes when we're in the ministry, we say, man, how come I didn't find out about that? How come I didn't know about that? And sometimes you will find out about that. You will hear about it. What's going on? A very big part of it is, man, our office staff. I want to give it up to our office staff. They do a great job of making sure the wheels keep going. Now, I say that because that's the behind-the-scenes stuff. That's the behind-the-scenes things that you don't see. Like, you see all these papers and the newspapers, and, and you see all the graphics, and, oh, that looks great. That looks awesome. But, man, Angelica's in there. I mean, she is just like, oh, what do I do? How do I? I mean, I think she has, like, six sets of eyes all over her head. Like, okay, let's, okay, wait. How about I do that? Okay, okay. Israel, how you doing? Okay, all right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're in there. I mean, Sister Beverly, I, I don't even know how she does it. She has, she's like an octopus in there. She has over here and over here. Oh, I need to go pray for this person. Hold on, I got to do the reconciliation. Hold on, let's do the, We got to count here. Okay, hold on, we got to make sure the envelopes are okay. You know, like how they, it's just like beyond me. It's beyond me. But in order to build the heart, we need people who can be mobilized. People with a certain set of skills, specific talents to move the wall. Nehemiah chapter 3, look with me here. This is what got me. In Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 1, it says, Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to the work and rebuilt the sheep gates. Now, translation is this. The first people Nehemiah put on the wall 
Pastors. He put the pastors. And look at this. This is what I like. As I was studying this, this really, this stuck out to me. I was like, why the sheep gate? Why would you put them at the sheep gate? You could put them anywhere else, but why would you put the priest at the sheep gate? The reason why they put the priest at the sheep gate is because when the sheep would come in, the priest would look, and what was the priest's job? To get the lambs, to get the sheep, and to prepare a sacrifice. The first people that need to sacrifice for the heart? Pastors. As goes the shepherd, so goes the sheep. That's our job. If I'm going to ask you to fast, I'm going to fast. If I'm going to ask you to give, I'm going to give. If I'm going to ask, man, oh, we got to be there. Listen to me, you need to know this. You here in the heart of the bay, you've got pastors that are ready to get their hands dirty, their knees dirty, their hearts dirty. They're ready to go. Why? Because we believe in building the heart. Nehemiah put the priest at the gate first. You get there first. It's not just something where we just talk about it. No, we are about it. We're being about it. Nehemiah mobilized these men. He understood what it was when he put everybody in a specific spot. See, we need to be able to sacrifice. Somebody say sacrifice. There's a true story of a man and a young teenage boy who checked into a hotel, and they were shown their room. The two receptionists noted the quiet manner of the man, uh, of the guests, and the pale appearance of the boy. Later, the man and the boy ate dinner in the hotel restaurant. The staff again noticed that the two guests were very quiet and that the boy seemed disinterested in his food. After eating, the boy went to his room and the man went to reception and asked to see the manager. The receptionist initially asked if there was a problem with the service or or of the room and offered to fix anything. But the man said that there was no problem of any sort and he repeated his request. The manager was called And then he duly appeared. The man asked to speak privately and was taken into the manager's office. The man explained that he was spending the night in the hotel with his 14-year-old son, who was seriously ill and probably terminally ill. The boy was very soon to undergo therapy, which would cause him to lose his hair. They had come to the hotel to have a break, and also because the boy planned to shave his head that night, rather than feel the illness that was beating him. The father said that he would be shaving his own head too in support of his son. So he asked the staff to be respectful when the two of them came down for breakfast with their heads shaved. The manager assured the father that he would inform all of his staff and that they were going to behave appropriately. The following morning, the father and the son entered the restaurant for breakfast. They saw four male restaurant staff attending to their duties, perfectly, normally mannered, all with shaved heads. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not talking about shaving your head, but could you sacrifice for someone you don't even know? Could you sacrifice for somebody who's here in the heart of the bay who's terminally sick? Going through it, now listen to me. I'm not talking in the physical, I'm talking in the spiritual. 
Right now, some of you, you got family members, and you're going to have to step out. If we're talking about fasting and we're talking about moving, it's going to take the supernatural. It's not going to take business as usual. It's not going to take the normal. Listen to me. Some of you, you've been looking for supernatural miracles, but just happening in the natural. Some of you, you're going to have to shave your head in the spirit. Some of you got to start fasting and sacrificing above a level. Start going up another level. This cannot be the norm. If we are going to see miracles in the heart of the bay, it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take some sacrifice. These men shaved their heads for something. They didn't even know. I thank God because I know when I'm on my knees, I'm praying for people I've never even met. I've never even met them, but I'm praying. Thank God. Let them come and let them get an experience with you. The second thing that Nehemiah did, and I'm going to go quickly through this one, is coordination. The first thing he did was mobilization. The second thing is coordination. It's one thing to mobilize. It's another thing to coordinate the people in the same direction with the same heart. Nehemiah had to make sure that there was an understanding and knowing exactly where to be and what to do. Now, without getting into it, you need, you need to know that as you read there in chapter 3, there were so many people coming from distant lands. Some of them would walk six miles just to get there. So when they got there, I don't know about you, but have you ever gone to a job site and you walk up there and you just go, okay, uh, well, what do I do today? What's very important is that Nehemiah, he mobilized, he said, come, but then he coordinated, okay, now that you're here, I need you to do this. Listen to me. Some of you, when you get here, we need you to do this. We, we, there's a coordination that makes everything flow properly, that everything goes properly. The other night, we had a prayer night. It was an all-night prayer night. Or actually, I think they prayed till like 1 or 2 in the morning. Some of you, we need you there. You talk about, man, I need prayer for my family. Okay, we need you right here. Get, get over here. Oh, man, we, we need some help over here with the kids' gang. We need you in the kids' gang. So it's coordination. In order to build this heart, we need everybody in their proper place. Coordinating, making sure that the leg is moving, the arm is moving, the hands are moving. It's very important to the building of the heart of the bay. Can I hear an amen? Rebuilding the walls was a very well-coordinated effort. There were no gaps in the wall. As you read chapter 3, you will see exactly how even each family and each person was put in its proper place. Matter of fact, the Bible says that the family members, the heads of the house, they would have a sword in one hand and a hammer in another. You say, well, why would they have a sword? You know why? Because as you rebuild, the enemy wants to keep it down. So if the enemy were to come, they would drop the hammer and use the sword. It's coordination. See, that's the great thing I love about, even when you read David's Mighty Man, I'm not speaking about it, but the Benjaminites, they were, they were coordinated in both hands. They were coordinated in both hands. They could throw it this way, and they could throw it that way. How you want? You want me to pray soft, or you want me to pray loud? You want me to give a little, or you want me to give a lot? However you want it, I'm ready. Coordinated. I don't know if any of you have ever played handball before. Anybody ever play handball? Right? When you play handball, the first time, I'll never forget I play handball. Everything I learned, I learned in the home. <laughs> Everybody says they learned it in jail. I learned it at home, all right? I learned it in the home. I lived in the home for years. So I used to play ping pong. I used to play basketball. I used to play handball on a wall smaller than the, you know, where the exit sign is. I mean, just a small little thing. It just, you know, just right, right there. But they, 
they teach you in handball, you got to be coordinated in both hands. Because if you're not coordinated in both hands, the other guy notices, he hits the ball, he makes you run all the time. Because you'll never do it. You can't hit it that way. You can't go that way because you're not coordinated. Here in the heart of the bay, we should be able, yeah, you want to go this way? Let's talk about that. You want to talk about drugs? Hey, we'll, we'll deal with drugs. You want to go jails? Let's deal with jails. You want to deal with homosexuality? Let's deal with homosexuality. You want to deal with, uh, you know, uh, uh, families coming together? You know, mixed families? Let's talk about mixed families. However you want to do it. What do you want to do? Marriages, singles, youth, kids gang? Whatever. We're coordinated in all areas. It's very important to come together. It was Henry Ford that said, coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress, but working together is a success. Ken Blanchard said, none of us is as smart as all of us. I'll wait for you to catch that right there. None of us is as smart as all of us. Listen, all together, we're stronger together. We're coordinated, and we're doing a mighty work for the, for the uh, promises of God. Can I hear an amen? The third thing and the last thing, and I close with this. First, Nehemiah showed skills and mobilization. Second was in coordination. Third was in appreciation. Appreciation. The people understood the importance of their contribution. They understood what was going on and the purpose and the, and the vision being fulfilled. They were laboring for something even bigger than themselves. They were laboring for their families, 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 family. They were laboring for a legacy. Nehemiah understood that these walls represented a distraught lifestyle. That these walls being down was more than rubble. It was their reputation. Listen to me, Victory Outreach, Heart of the Bay. What we're doing is important to Hayward. Listen, we may not be chronicled in the city hall archives, but what we are doing is more important than any piece of paper that can ever pass in that city hall. Listen, we don't need those accolades. If we get them, praise the Lord. We'll put them on a wall. But that wall of accolades, that wall of awards doesn't change who we are. We're here for a cause. Nehemiah understood this. He said, listen, listen to me. These walls being down, it's important. We got to build these things. We need to put this up. Listen, you, you grab a sword. You, you grab a hammer. You, you go over there at that part of the gate. You, you go over there. I need you to usher. I need you to security. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. Why? Because what we're doing is important. It was important. What we're doing here in the heart of the bay is important for Hayward. It's important not only for Hayward, but for the bay. If everything flows through the heart, then my friend, revival is going to flow through the heart. It's important for what we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26 says, Therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Listen, what we're doing right here, we're not just beating the air. We're not just coming and having church. Okay, let's go to church today. Honey, put on your best dress. We're just going to go and look good. No. We don't come up here to look good. Matter of fact, none of us are good. There is only one. And that's who we come to worship. That's who we come to praise. And that's who we come to represent. 
What we're doing here is important. We're not just coming up here. And listen, I don't want you to know, we have this assembly of the heart. That's not just well, $20. Here you go. You could just have $20. No, that's not $20. What you're doing is you're taking the hammer, you're taking the sword and saying, man, I'm building the walls. I'm building something for my children, my children's children. Listen, the, the, the reputation of victory outreach, it precedes us. It's very important what we're doing right here, right now. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. We started the Assembly of the Heart back in, I think, October, November. And we've been building some finances. We've been getting some finances. And I'm going to be honest, we don't have a whole lot of finances. Matter of fact, if I could disclose to you, you guys come to our church, we have about $15,000. That's what we have, $15,000 to date. And to be very honest, in buying a building, if anybody know, does anybody know about buying a building or buying anything? 15000 is what? <sighs> nothing. It's nothing at all. But I'm going to be honest with you. The Lord spoke to me. He said, even with that 15, I want you to get ready. I'm like, wait a second. Hold on one second. I've only got $15,000. God, did you hear me? Did you hear me? Fifteen, I, you can barely do anything. Look at, you know that this sound system right here, this just, I'm just talking the sound system. Just this sound system is worth three times what we have in the bank. I'm talking a sound system. I'm talking about trying to buy a building. I said, are you serious? I don't have that. But he says, listen, I didn't train you to be a boxer to beat the air. I didn't train you to come over here and be a part and, and raise you up and, and make you a people that were not a people just so that you can come and, and be a light that's so dimly lit. No, I'm going to make sure that you are a light, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And what you're about to do and what you're about to venture into is something greater than what you've ever seen ever before within your, uh, within your natural life. I'm about to tap the supernatural into your natural. In the heart of the bay, we are ready to build. We're ready to do something. We have people with a hammer, people with a sword and say, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to give. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do what God has called us to do. Listen to me, heart of the bay. Are you ready? Are you ready? Look at me. Sit down real quick. I want to give you this real fast. Nehemiah chapter 2. Look at this. Nehemiah chapter 2. I close with this. He can come to the piano. Nehemiah chapter 2 says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruin." And its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Listen, I hope you appreciate what is happening here. This got me the other day. I shared this with uh, the pastors and, and some of the ministers. Now, I don't know how true it is. It's just, you know, can't believe everything you read on the Internet, right? But somebody put up there, I don't know if you follow on Facebook, but I, I always check and check and check and double check. And so I had to I, just a little bit of research on it just to check and make sure. But there was actually two websites that I found it on. But it was one that got me. It said the 10 most dangerous cities in California. Did anybody else read that? Let me see. Did anybody read that? Raise your hand if you read that. Oh, okay. So a few of you read it. All right. 
No, I checked the source. I wanted to check and make sure, you know, it's not one of them you know, fake things or whatever. You can never know nowadays. The Lord is coming. He's already here. He's in Quezon City. That's actually a true, a true fake story, I guess you could, if you want to call it. That actually happened. I'm not lying. Right? That's Pastor Daryl. It's true. But I checked it, and they had the top ten cities. Now, this was the thing. It was called the most dangerous cities, not most violent or anything. They did danger, and they, they had a whole thing of why they called it dangerous because there was, uh, they put everything into account. They put uh, uh, domestic violence, uh, murders, homicides, uh, pedophilia, I mean, all that stuff. I, they put everything into account. They put all the stuff that happened uh, w within the, the communities of the cities of California, right? They put craziness. They, everything was taken into account to measure what makes a city dangerous, right? And on there, number one, obviously, I don't know. Well, of course, you probably know it. I hate to even say it like that because it's horrible, but it's true. And if you live here in the Bay Area, you know it's true. Everybody knows Oakland is crazy. It's just a crazy city. And we need to do, uh, and when I say we, I mean this church, we need to keep going to Oakland. I know there's churches there, but they ain't never stopped us before. We still need to go there and save some souls. We have gone to Oakland, prayed for people, and put them in their men's home. It's not about bringing them to our men's home. Just take them anywhere. I don't care. They need to get saved. Sanctify, get in the home. Let's get there. Oakland's huge too, by the way. Very big. So that's the most dangerous city in America. Or excuse me, in California. And then I think uh, number 10 was, uh, or five, Stockton, I think it was. Number two, Madeira. Okay, right? I'll just let you chew on that for a second because I don't know what to say. I've only been to Madeira like twice. So, yeah, that's kind of one of those cities you're just like, hey, how you doing? All right, let's go to Madeira. We passed it? Right? That's what Madeira is. Okay. Number three, Hayward. Dangerous. This is what God showed me while I was in prayer and fasting. It's funny because when I when I speak with people, some people from Oakland, and I, we talk about dangerous. When they're in it, they're like, "That's not that dangerous. It's no big deal." When you're in it, you don't you never notice it. You don't really notice it. It's not a big deal to you. So when they said Hayward, I'm like, Pfft. but while I was in prayer, all of a sudden God started showing me. I, this really got me. For about two weeks, I don't know where you live. I live right over here, uh, off Cherryland, right here, Sunset. For two weeks, only one day out of the two weeks, or maybe two days, but one day that I can know for a fact, two weeks straight, I heard nothing but police chases. Now, I don't know where you live. I live right here. For two weeks straight, police chases. Then in those two weeks, there was two murders. Now, see, for us, we can go, not Hayward, but see, 
It's the things that we don't notice. The things that we don't see. The things that, uh, listen, I don't care if it's even one soul that dies. Just one soul. What if that one soul was your brother? Changes everything, huh? See, at first we're just like, ah, uh, there's no way. But what if that's your brother? What if that's your sister that died? What if that was your son? Whew. Changes everything, huh? I began to think about that. I said, man, what if that was my son? What if that was my son? Kid over here got hit by a car. He was like two years old or something. What if that was my son? What if that was my daughter? You know, my, my goal is I don't ever, ever want to be on that list. Never want to be on that list. See, a lot of times when you're in the world, you're like, yeah, I'm big and bad. I don't want to be on a list for being big and bad. I want to be on a list for being humble and good. That's what the list I want to be on. Because that's a list that nobody's going to read. Don't nobody want to read that list. Good, don't read it. As long as my name is written on the Lamb's Book of Life, that's fine. That's the only list that I ever want to be on. Listen to me, Hayward. Listen to me, Victory Outreach, Heart of the Bay. Our job is to get off that list. It's our job. South Garden's going crazy, man. It's going nuts. The other day after Eric called me, he said, hey, we're doing this. Man, they're doing some big things over there. And I got convicted after. They had already left, but he doesn't know. But I went over there. I started praying. I just went over there. I got in my car, drove there. Stopped there, started praying. God, we need a revival in this city, man. We need a revival in this city. We need to rebuild the walls. Listen to me. Don't think for a second, well, I just give a dollar. It's no big deal. No. You're rebuilding the walls. Well, what does it matter if I show up to church? It's not a big deal. No. You're rebuilding the walls. Well, I don't know how to sing. I can't get in the choir. I don't know how to lift my hands. No! You're rebuilding the walls. Well, I, I, I can't offer all that much. I, I don't have that much understanding. I, I don't know all the scriptures. I no, my friend, you're rebuilding the walls. God is doing something in the heart of the bay. And my friend, Victory Outreach, we are on the edge. We are on the cutting edge of doing something great and dynamic in this city. Once again, we are going to see a revival in this city, in the Bay Area. Once again, like never before, the violence will drop. The gangs will drop. The addictions will drop. The domestic violence will drop. All those things will drop and God will get all of the glory, all of the praise, all of the honor. Why? Because there was a people who are not a people that believed in building the heart of the bay. Lift your hands with me here this morning. Shakara city